Good morning again, and happy Sabbath. Thank you to the choir. Give them all to Jesus. Amen. Give it all to the Lord. Today we're going to continue on a, on a study we are doing of, uh, of some core uh, beliefs, some core theological beliefs, foundations of the Protestant Reformation. As this year, uh, we commemorate the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. And today we're going to, call, to talk about God's grace. But before we do that, I'd like to invite you to join me in prayer before we start, we start this message. So as far as possible, join me as I kneel down for prayer. Yes, Lord, we want to thank you once again. It's never too much to thank you for the freedom we still have to worship you, to congregate, congregate to be able to uh, read scripture and study scripture and proclaim your word. And Father, please help us to uh, make a good use of this time, of the freedom we still have. May your name be glorified. And now as we open up scripture and uh, when I speak, Lord, may the words that I speak not be a reflection of my own thoughts, but may I, I convey the message that you have for us this morning. Father, I ask that everything that will be said here may be for your glory and honor and may represent your will for us today. I ask you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you have ever thought about uh, whether or not there is anything good that was left in you, that was left inside of you after sin came into this world. Are you following me? So after men fell, was there anything good that was left inside of him? Or was all of his nature uh, corrupted because of sin? So you don't need, sorry? Filthy rags. That's what the Bible says in Isaiah. Our righteousness are like filthy rags. And so uh, for, for some centuries... Some Christians uh, uh, clung to this idea that, no, yes, there is, there is something good that was left inside of us. Because God created us perfect. And so something, and that's a, that's a positive thought. But I am afraid that thinking is not in alignment with Scripture. Because we see here in, Isaiah, in Psalm, Psalm 58... If you have your Bibles, you can follow with me. Psalm 58, verse 3. Psalm 58, verse 3. And the Bible says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as, as, soon as they are born, speaking lies. So as soon as they are born, they speak lies. And... Uh, it seems then there isn't anything good that was left inside of men after the entrance of sin. And all of our efforts, everything we might try to do to seem justifiable before God is of no good. 
because we are sinners, we have been corrupted. Suppose that three men, three men got together and said, and they have decided that they were going to swim all the way from uh, Victoria, from Vancouver Island, all the way from Vancouver to Tokyo, Japan. And the three of them are all good swimmers. And they jump in the water and they start swimming. And I can tell you, it doesn't matter how good swimmers they are. It doesn't matter if one of them is better than the others. And probably one of them will go farther than the other two. But at some point, all three will end up dead. Because Tokyo is just too far from Vancouver. They can't reach it by just swimming. And in our walk with the Lord, it's some way like that. You know, the Lord is too high for us. He's too holy for us. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, the Bible says, For my thoughts, this is God speaking through, uh, through the mouth of his prophet Isaiah, through the, the pen of his prophet. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. Whereas the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So the Lord is too holy for us even on our best days. He's too holy for us even on our best weeks or years to make ourselves acceptable to Him. We needed something. We needed something called God's grace to restore us. And let's not fool ourselves the fact that we live a better life today or that we do better things and we may be a nicer person today. It may be good to, for making us a better neighbor. But it doesn't commend us to heaven. Our entrance in heaven. Will be given to us. Is, is provided rather for us by God's grace. That's what the Bible teaches. Because Paul just said that by grace you are saved. By grace you have been saved. So it's not me who is saying that Paul said that. So what is it? What is God's grace to begin with? There is a classic definition of God's grace. God's grace is unmerited favor. Yes, you can speak out. I'm, I'm okay with that. So God's grace is unmerited favor. Is undeserved favor. Is something that we did not deserve. Something we didn't do anything to, to deserve. Anything to earn. But is granted to us. That's what Paul says. We go back to our scripture text today. In Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 8 and 9. And in verses 8 and 9. Paul says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So it's God's unmerited gift to us. God's grace is also an expression of His kindness. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 here in Ephesians 2. Paul says, But God who is rich in mercy. God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. So God's grace is also an expression of His Mercy is also an expression of His love, of His kindness. 
But there is also something more to God's grace. It's not only unmerited favor. It's not only an expression of His kindness. It's also God's divine empowerment. It empowers you to follow Him. It empowers you to live a life that is obedient to His law. In verse 5, the next verse here, Paul says, Even when you were dead in trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So even when we were dead in our trespasses, God's grace reached us and made us alive. He brought us back to life so that we we could be alive together with Christ. So my question to you is, who has always taken the initiative for the salvation of men? It's been always God. It's always been God. It's not been men. Remember in the Garden of Eden when, when Adam and Eve had uh, fallen, had sinned, and they tried to make up for it. They found out that they were, uh, they were naked, and they, uh, they sewed some clothes out of uh, fig trees and fig leaves, and they thought it would be fine. But even with that on, they still felt awkward. And, though we, and then we see there in, in, in Genesis that God comes and says, Adam, where are you? So God comes always after us, looking for us, trying to save us, to rescue us. God had a special message for his people, the people of Israel. And he was looking around to raise a prophet for him. And he looked and found this young boy. And the young boy was just lying down to sleep. And God's voice was heard, Samuel, Samuel. And for four times God called him, Samuel, Samuel. It was God coming after him. It was God coming after his people, looking after us. So God is always, throughout the Bible and throughout the history of the human race, God has always been the one who takes the initiative, the initiative to save us. Now, many Christians believe that God's grace is irresistible. So the idea is that God goes after you with His grace, surrounds you, and you just cannot resist it. Is that correct? Is that how we understand God's grace? Well, yes and no. Why am I saying yes and no? Let's think about it. The, the answer depends on what, on which aspect of God's grace we are talking about. If we believe that everything in our human nature was corrupted because of sin, then there is no way we could even respond to God's love. Listen to this. Man was originally, this comes from Steps to Christ, page 17. Man was originally endowed with noble powers and a well-balanced mind, right? He was perfect in his being and in harmony with God. Do we agree with this? We all do. His thoughts were pure. His aims were holy. But through disobedience, his powers were perverted and selfishness took the place of love. His nature became so, became so weakened through transgression that it was impossible for him 
in his own strength to resist the power of evil. So I'll repeat this. Man's nature became so weakened through transgression that it was impossible for him in his own strength to resist the power of evil. He was made captive by Satan and would have remained so forever had not God specially interposed. So the truth is that because of sin, may became captive by Satan, was made captive by Satan. And there was no power in man, there was no strength in man to resist the power of evil. And we've all been there. We are not Adam and Eve, but we've all been there. We found ourselves at a point in our lives, at situations in our lives, where we find no power to resist evil, unless we reach out to God. Unless we ask for Him, for His strength. Unless we ask for His power, and He will give us, that we may overcome evil. But in our own strength, we had no power whatsoever to resist evil. And so if man was captive, was made captive by Satan and could not resist evil at all, how could he respond to God's love? Well, there is something we call, and this word is not in the Bible, but is a concept that we call God's prevenient grace. So what is it? God is always trying to find, to rescue man. He's always trying to surround us with expressions of His love, of His grace. He comes after us, He calls us, and many times we don't recognize God's voice. Well, Adam was created perfect. He had direct contact, face-to-face -face contact with God. And so when God came, even after sinning, God said, Ab, Adam, where are you? It was not too hard for Adam to recognize God's voice. But today, with all those voices around here, people can't even believe God exists, much less to recognize His voice. But God is still going out there. He's still searching for people. He's still calling us by name. People may not recognize it, but for us to be able to respond to God, this prevenience grace has to restore in us a measure of free will that will allow us to respond to God. We had been made captive by Satan. There was no power in us to resist evil. So God has to restore in us even our free will. Because we had no free will whatsoever to begin with. Our free will was, was given in, was surrendered to Satan. And he made us captive. So God... Through His prevenient grace, He restored in us this measure of free will. So that grace is irresistible. You can't resist it. It gives you some awareness of God. It restores a measure of free will enough to render you, to then render you accountable and responsible in God's sight. And this prevenient grace also illumines the mind in order that the most basic attributes of God can at least be dimly perceived by reason. So the result is that the, the result of this divine action of God's prevenient grace is that humanity now has sufficient grace to be able to respond to God's offering of salvation in Jesus Christ. Then, then, after this free will restored in you by God's prevenient grace, comes God's saving grace. And unfortunately, 
people resist that. People reject God's free offer of grace, saving grace. Therefore, God's prevenient grace is, is working in all human beings. And once this free will is restored, they can either accept God's saving grace or reject it. It's only at that point that God can talk to human beings and they can respond like Isaiah says, Isaiah 55, 45, 22. God says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So God's saving grace, God's calling and God's offer of salvation in Jesus Christ goes out throughout the world. And once this free will has been restored, we are able to turn to God. We have, we have a, at least a desire to respond to Him. And we look to Him and we can be saved. God's grace is such a gift of salvation that we better not resist it. We better not resist it. Because His grace is still available. But the Bible indicates that the time will come when He who is, who is filthy will continue to be filthy. Who, he who is clean will be clean still. That time will come. So for now it's time for us to still make use. To make good use of the opportunities we have. When God's grace comes around us. You know there's the story of this man who very much had been dreaming about taking on a voyage. It was a cruise. And he had long, been long, had long been longing for that. He wanted so much to go on this cruise. And he, he saved every penny he could to be able to pay for the cruise. And finally he had saved up enough money that he could uh, go on that voyage. And he paid for the ticket. And all his money was spent on that. And now he was afraid because he said, now I spent all my money on this. I can't really pay for any. I can't eat out. I'll be able, I have to make my own meal here and carry that with me for the cruise. And so he, he the, 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 just the rest of money he had, he got it together and he said, I'm going to buy some bread. I'm going to buy some peanut butter and some jelly. And I'm going to ma make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and that's all I'm gonna eat throughout all the cruise because that, that's all I can afford I can't go to restaurants there in the on the on the ship or whatever and so he did he packed enough peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for the whole cruise a two-week cruise and he got on board and he he was directed to his uh, place to his cabin and he took his place and he started and then he was hungry and he started eating his his first sandwich but meanwhile, he would look at people and he would see people gorging themselves with all that food there. He said, oh, I'm so sorry I can't afford that. Lord, have mercy on me. I'm here with peanut butter and jelly and these people are, are eating all of this. One day he, he ran across one of the guys who was coming back to his cabin with a plate full of food. A bountiful meal. And to look at the man and said, you know, let me ask you something. I... I know I can't afford that, but uh, I wonder how much you paid for that. But because I've been eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every day, and I'm, I can't stand it anymore. And the man looked at him, looked at him with some suspicion, and uh, and then the man said, "Well, I don't know if you know it, but 
the meals, the food are included in your ticket, so you're free to eat that. And you know, there, there are many Christians today that live a life of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And they look out and they look around and they look at others and they, and they wonder how, how is it that they cannot enjoy a, a, a mega meal. Vegetarian meal, of course, but vegan. And they look around and they look at other Christians who seem to be victorious. There are other Christians who seem to be on top. Or seem to be eating spiritual, uh, a full meal. But they, but they wonder why they're limited to that. And what that man on the cruise ship didn't understand, and what too many Christians did, do not understand, is that this is exactly the principle of grace. With God's grace comes everything else. With God's grace comes everything else. I was talking to someone the other day who wanted Bible studies. And this person lives a little far from, uh, from where the church is. And I said, we can arrange for someone to come to you and, and give the Bible studies. That's not a problem. Oh, no, but that's, that's too long a commuting. That's a lot of driving. That's a lot of gas. And I said, that's all right. That's what we do. We take pleasure in t teaching the Bible. So we can come to you. And as much as I try to make it, you know, a simple thing and make the person understand that we would be pleasured to do that, pleased to do that, the person said, no, I, I, that's not fair. I know, I'm sorry, I don't want that. It's not fair that you would have to travel all the way. But, but that's the principle of God's grace. With God's grace comes everything. With God's grace comes pleasure as you serve the Lord. Jesus was sending the disciples, the 12 disciples, out to minister to people. And he said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Freely you have received, freely give. So God's grace is not only for your benefit. God's grace is not only to restore you back to life. God's grace is not only to make you alive together with Christ. God's grace has reached you that you may also bless others. And it's a biblical principle that if you are not blessing others, you're not making use of God's grace appropriately. Freely give the gifts that you have received and they will be multiplied. Freely share God's grace with others. Freely work for the salvation of others. And God will bless you. God will bless you even more. God's grace is this unmerited favor. This gift. That comes to restore you. To a minimum level of responsiveness to God's love. And then God's grace comes and saves you. As Paul says, you have been saved by grace, by God's grace. But then what? It may sound as if, it might sound as if I'm saying here that there is nothing for you to do. That you just sit and wait for God's grace to reach you and, and do all the transformation. 
Well, there is nothing that you can do to make yourself more presentable to God. Because if God were to look at you, God, God when He looks at you, He can see the inner parts of your soul, which we cannot. And we may come to church dressed up properly, and nicely shaved and combed and groomed. And we see the outside. And we, look, we see people smiling and wishing happy Sabbath. We don't really know what goes inside. But the Lord knows. He does. And He sees not only the desire we have to serve Him. He also sees all the corruption that is in our hearts. And so if God was, were to look at that, we would be lost. But God sees us through the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at us, those who have accepted Him, those who have responded to His saving grace, He sees Christ. You know, the law requires a perfection that none of us can actually achieve. But Christ can. And so God looks at us and He looks through the lenses of His Son, Jesus Christ. But the question still remains, so then there is nothing for me to do because Christ is perfect and He's the one who has died for me and He's the one that God sees when He looks at me. Well, first you have to respond. First you have to accept God's free gift of salvation. How good is a gift if you don't take possession of it? How good would it be if I gave you a $1 million check? That's not going to happen ever, by the way, but... If I were to give you that check, and I say, here is one million dollars. And you would take the check and, and, and clean it every day from every drop of dust. Every speck of dust on it. And keep it in a drawer and say, this my pastor gave me. It's one million dollars. And you never cash that check. It's no good. So you must respond to God's free offer of salvation. And after God makes you alive, after God saves you through His grace, you respond through a life that is obedient to His commands. And you do that with your heart full of pleasure. You do that because He has saved you. And you don't want to go back to where you were. God is the one who remains sovereign in this whole process. Remember that everything started with God and still continues with Him. Still starts with God. It's God still saving, reaching out and saving people. He is the one who has always been taking the first step. He's the one who takes the first step for the redemption of the human race. God is the great first cause. God is the great first cause. He's the source of all power and grace and efficiency. Human agencies are to yoke up with Christ. Here's our part in it. You are to yoke up with Christ. You are God's husbandry. You are to work out that which God works in. Are you following me? You are to work out that which God works in. Paul says that in Philippians chapter 2 verse 13. Philippians 2.13 Work out your own salvation. Remember that Paul says that? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's serious stuff. You have to work out your own salvation. 
But the second part of the text says, For it is God which works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So you'll be working out your... You'll be given signs that you'll be saved. You'll be acting as a saved Christian. Because God works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Your heart has to be cultivated by the Holy Spirit. That it may bear fruit unto righteousness. You know, at times this may sound as very complicated. And when people say we are saved, when someone comes around saying we are saved by God's grace. And it's God's grace alone that can save us. It seems extremely simple. And we have a hard time accepting that. And we try as much as we can, do something that will commend us to heaven. And I said this the last time I was here, and I repeat it today. There is nothing you can do to commend you before God's eyes. That's all I said, and that's all I'm saying. There is nothing you can do to make you more presentable to God. Something that will do that will make you look nicer before God's eyes. So that God could look at you and say, hey, he looks so pious. He looks so righteous. I'm going to save him. Are you following me? So that's what I'm saying. But there is a response that is expected. Because if you don't respond to God's love, you won't be saved. And if, you, and if you are not saved, and if Christ is not living in you, there will be no fruits in your life. And if there are no fruits, you are not saved after all. And you will be lost. If you are not saved, you will be lost. So, this may sound too simple or may sound too complicated, depending on how much, how much we trust in God's provision to save us. God is in the midst of, the heaven, of heaven, having what? The everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on earth. What is the gospel? This is the gospel. It is Christ who saves us. It's His grace who reaches us. And next time I come here, I'll talk about faith. That's another element. So this is the angel preaching this everlasting gospel. We have always been saved by faith, by grace, through faith. To preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory. For the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. And another angel followed saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And then a third angel appeared and followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. 
But verse 12 closes with this note. Here is the patience of the saints. Who are those then who are going to be with Christ forever and ever? Here are those who do what? Keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So next time we are going to cover the faith. What is this faith of Jesus? What is it to have this faith which is part of God's plan of salvation? Keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. May God bless us all that we may respond to his invitation of grace of his free offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. And may we do that with a joyful heart, knowing that he works in and we work out with fear and trembling. God bless us all.